Hi, welcome to the Express Results Bulletin for Which Decade? Season 2, Episode 1. Now, I'm joined here by Nick. Hello. However, DJ Trev is currently off cruising the fjords. So we've decided to replace Trev for this bulletin with an AI-generated Trev bot. Hello there. I would love to be there. It's not that I'm too big for it. Once I start, you won't be able to stop me. Jeez. Scooter. You're looking at me like, no, I don't know where you're going with this. We were well ahead of the curve anyway with AI, because I think we used ChatGPT to construct an introduction to episode two or episode three. Everyone's jumping on the bandwagon now. We're just hopping back on board the same bandwagon. So you'll get some Trev-generated content as we progress. I'm really into the wave scene. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to those of you who have subscribed to our Patreon. We've got a little fledgling community developing there. Much appreciated. Patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. I also just need to give a pro tip to any aspirant podcasters out there. Pro tip. Never publish an episode of a podcast over an Easter weekend. I think this episode is going to go down as our deep cut. Bit of a selective audience for this one. Still got some good comments on the votes. It's a shame it's a deep cut because I still think it's the strongest selection of tracks we've ever had. Some of our commenters agree. Mark says, I think by a distance, this is the most consistently strong week thus far. And James, Centuries of Sound, he says, Great week. I either like or love all of these, which made it harder to pick, of course. I like what Centuries of Sound generally says. Musically, this lot is certainly the best of the last few weeks we've had by quite a way. There's some absolute tunes. It was a good week, wasn't it, Nick? Did you think so? I agree. I think cruising the fjords sounds like a euphemism, but I believe he is actually cruising the fjords. You replaced some swear words with, like, waste and loving. Cruising the fjord sounds like you've done the same. Of course, what you might be doing is staking out Morton Harkett's house in order to pitch a Donk Step remix of one of their classics. That could be a secret mission. The sun always shines on Donk. On DJT. <laughs> There's a Donk scene that's absolutely massive. Yeah. Uh, yes, very strong week. I agree. Glad you agree. But there has to be a loser. And in this case, our loser, earning minus one point for the 1970s, is If You Can't Give Me Love by Susie Quattro. Malcolm the Break Doctor said, I really loved this. Some great lyrics in there. Alex said, she probably never got the respect she deserved, but Chill and Chapman's speciality was based around adding painstaking layers of inauthenticity to an artist. I prefer this to the glam stuff and the vocals good, but I still don't believe in it. While James says, I'm tempted to say this is nothing special, but actually it's kind of lovely, if a little workmanlike. I feel bad to be giving it minus points. Any other week, I could possibly have given it one or even two. Yeah, me too, James. It was harsh giving the minus one, in my case, to Susie. I think we all gave the minus one to Susie on the panel, didn't we? No, I didn't. But I, I do agree. With, I think there are other weeks where this would definitely have scored some points. I think it was just in a tough week. It's okay. It's a bit 
unforgettable. I have DJed in my time supporting Napalm Death and Adiva. I love their outfits. And that's the nature of pop music, isn't it? Let's go into the Met Zone. First up in the Met Zone for the 1990s, that's Father, LL Cool J. Craig says, I really liked his 80s music, but I haven't listened to him in years, so I had no idea he had pivoted to R&B. This track does not make me want to investigate further. It just sounds a bit tired. Lots of other people do this stuff better. Mark says, I have no memory at all of this, which is weird because I had mostly been reviewing hip hop over the last few years and was still on all the mailing lists. Like Mike, I loved the early stuff. Unlike him, I forgave LL for I Need Love. My favourite song of his is Going Back to Cali from 1988. James says, genuinely affecting stuff. It feels like LL is bearing his soul here. I just wish that he had toned it down a smidgen with a gospel choir. Shocking I'm not giving it points, considering how much I like it. Yeah, Going Back to Cali from 1988. That was the last LL Cool J single I bought physically at the time. I gave him one more try after I Need Love. I didn't like it because it had that up-tempo, uh, salt and pepper push it, MC Hammer, you can't touch this kind of rock feel to it, which I thought wasn't proper hip-hop. It was a double A-side with a much cooler track called Jack the Ripper, which sounds very much in the public enemy vein. Jack the Ripper was the track all the cool DJs played. Actually, going back to Cali sounds pretty good in retrospect. I did try I Need Love one more time. It starts well, actually. I take the point about him being quite heartfelt and he's made mistakes and he's been too much of a player and now he wants something deeper. But by the time you get to the second verse, it's just mushy and ploppy and sappy and it, it never really gets back from that. But I know that you have a greater tolerance for these sort of things than me, Nick. No, well, uh, like I said, this is normally the sort of thing I just can't listen to. So the fact that I even got through to the end of it and thought, actually, this is all right. I think a lot of it is to do with the sample. I haven't listened to Father by L. Cool J in the last two weeks, but I have listened to Father Figure again. And I've listened to the PM Dawn track again that samples it, whose name currently escapes me, but I've played it quite a bit. That was nice to find again. Is it better? Does it make better use of it than Father, would you say? No. No, that I really rate what LL Cool J did with it. I think it makes much more sense of the sample than PM Dawn do, much as I love PM Dawn. I've got a Scarpunk version of 500 Miles that I played after it. Also in the Met Zone for the 2000s. What's it going to be? H2O featuring Platinum. We're going to have to have some of the dance music now. The bass line and grime. Woman bass. Electro swing. Big beat. Hardcore rave music. The Mad Stunt. Calvin Harris. Drill. Roger Sanchez. Grime. the League, don't you want? And a bit of Northern Soul. I like to move it, move Awful. It. Malcolm is a DJ. He says... Now, I like and DJ a lot of Garage, but this is just garbage, sadly. Nothing else to say about it. Alex says, there's a beat, but there doesn't seem to be any element of an actual song in there. And I don't understand what anybody gets from listening to stuff like this. This is basically the muffled noise you hear when a twat pulls up next to you at the lights. Ouch. James says... I love new club genres breaking through into the charts, even if they get somewhat cheesified in the process. It's the juxtaposing and churning process that is so often the stuff of great pop. 
avoid the Daz Sampson style video, though. I remember the Daz Sampson video. He was the UK Eurovision entry in 2006, and he made a lot of use of fit lasses in school uniform. Valid comparison. That is by far the best comment we've had so far. The one about sounds like something a twat who pulls up at the lights you do. That is absolutely true. Also, by the way, I mean, you know, Malcolm rightly points out there's only a B between garage and garbage. <laughs> Stole my joke. Oh, very good. No, sorry. If someone pulls up next to you the lights in our town, they'll be blasting out chicory tip, not baseline house. Oh, yes. We established that a few weeks ago, didn't we? People in their Citroën Saxo playing uh, Edison Lighthouse as they whiz around the, uh, what do they call it, the drag. Where's this guy, DJ? I never need to go there. All right, into the top three. Earning one point for the 2010s is All the Stars by Hendrik Lamar and Scissor. Said Caesar last time. Scissor, I stand corrected. Unforgivable. Joris says, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who doesn't get Kendrick. Craig says, this reminds me of the time when my kids would insist we listen to Capital Radio in the car for every journey. For a few years, I knew their playlist inside out and grew to like a lot of pop music that I wouldn't otherwise have bothered with. David says, great track and movie. But I would have voted for this, even if it had been crap, after all the moaning about having to work at Kendrick Lamar and Dylan. If you have to work at anything, it's crap. If you don't listen to words, on the other hand, that's on you. Trenchant comment from David there. He doesn't mince his words. That was the comment that leapt out of me. All of us went, ooh. It's not a bad point. Well... See, I, re- I did actually say this in the previous episode. Maybe, yeah, it's just because I'm superficial and lazy. I'm buying that. Also, I happen to know that David is a lifelong massive Bob Dylan fan who also has a lot of time for the work of Kendrick Lamar. I, I get that nobody likes to hear their favourite artists glibly dismissed. But for me, there's got to be something above and beyond the lyrics that pulls me in and induces me to put the work in in the first place. And with Kendrick Lamar and with Bob Dylan, my subjective reaction to their vocal tone and to the musical accompaniment doesn't induce me to put the work in. Whereas if you take artists like Leonard Cohen or John Grant or early Kanye West before he went mad, putting the work in comes really naturally. It doesn't feel like homework. I want to do it. And that was the case with Kendrick's album, the one that should have won the Pulitzer Prize, in my opinion, to Bimper Butterfly. The musical accompaniment on that was so fresh and innovative and adventurous that I immediately was drawn in to the lyrical content. There's one thing I've noticed about doing this podcast series that I wasn't expecting. I'm increasingly finding myself not only critiquing the tracks, but critiquing myself as a listener a lot of stuff I was too cool for at the time. Do you find yourself critiquing yourself as a listener here, Nick? Do you question any of your assumptions? Um, yes. I think the thing with me is that I've started paying more attention to the lyrics. I've mm. started actually ha- reading them because even songs that I think I know, I fairly quickly work out that I don't know as many of the lyrics as I thought I did. Oh, it sounds terrible. I mean, you've described me before as a melody kind of tune person i think that is it songs guy and uh, you know lyrics are great and obviously they're a key part of it and stuff but i think that i'm not interested in kendrick lamar's fantastic lyrics 
I think I would be more interested in them if I like the music, perhaps, but I'm not interested in it just because the lyrics are great. Yeah. In the same way that I don't read poetry, which presumably is also great. I would just like to say, Joris, 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 I don't get Kendrick Lamar either. So you're not the only one. I absolutely don't get it either. There you are, Joris. There's a nurturing community here for you on Witch Decade. Into the top two. I'm on the edge of my seat, ready to fall off it. Earning two points for the 1960s is the four tops with If I Were a Carpenter. Mark says, I don't think I've heard the four tops version of this before, and I like it a lot. I'm fond of the Baroque turn taken in the later 60s by folkies like Phil Ochs, and that somehow fits well with the tops, who are maybe my favourite Motown group anyway. James says, yeah, just beautiful. Some kind of magic seems to have been in the air around this time. While David says, the Four Tops doing folk covers doesn't do it for me. But oddly, I was fine with them improving the moody blues. And by that, I think David's referring to A Simple Game, which was a number three for the Four Tops in 1971. That was originally a moody blues song. I was expecting more universal acclaim from the four tops that we got, even though it still came in second. And the few other comments were saying, yeah, this isn't quite right for me. It's not quite Motown-y. It's a funny combination. It's a funny cover. I think you were of the same opinion, weren't you, Nick? No, I love it. Uh, four Tops my favourite Motown act also, but I do prefer the Four Tops doing the Motown. I, I mean, I know there's the joke of it's the same old song, Essentially, all of their songs are broadly versions of that, you could argue. But I do love this. Every version I listened to of it, I liked in its own way, which means, for me, it must be a brilliant song. I can't remember any of them. I think also with the Four Tops covers on this Reach Out album that they had, maybe how you react to them depends on whether or not you're familiar with the original. Now, if you're up on your Tim Hardins... You will have heard, if I were a carpenter before the Four Tops version, you might think, well, that's that's a bit off, because you've got the version of the song in your head already. Well, oh, I'm not sure what they're doing here. And I was wondering whether, this is a totally hypothetical question, but if you'd never heard The Monkeys and I'm a Believer and Last Train to Clarksville by the Four Tops, the first versions you heard, you might have thought they were classic Motown soul tracks because they're perfectly good versions. No, I, I agree. I've had it twice in recent months. For people of our age, it's just, it's one of those things where you just can't get your head around it. Trying to explain to somebody in my office the other day that Tragedy by Steps is not the original. And they were like, what do you mean? And you're like, how do you not know it was the Bee Gees? They think that is the definitive version of Tragedy because that's the only version they have ever heard. Yeah, I had that with some cover version hits in my childhood in the 70s. The cover version was still, it still is the definitive version for me. It happens. It's impossible to be objective about music. It's a nice enough 60s song. It is a very 60s sounding tune. You wouldn't get a song written like this these days. It's in and out, no mucking about. If I was drunk, I would dance to it. It's nice enough. So, our winner earning three points for the 1980s, Eighth Wonder, with I'm Not Scared. Malcolm says, I loved this when it came out, and I remember teenage interest, quote marks around interest, in Patsy Kensit. The Pet Shop Boys did a better job with this song, though. David says, pity the Pet Shop Boys didn't give it to Sarah Cracknell. She's the lead singer of St. Etienne, in case you didn't know that. 
Mark says, <laughs> a seemingly rare moment when what I like overlaps with what Nick likes. In 1988, I was living in Milan, where indeed Eighth Wonder were big. A friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, came over and we bought a pirate copy of the album on tape. Our take at the time was the single was great, the album less so, and Patsy Kensett was a figure of fun, as she had been since being overhyped in the run-up to the release of Absolute Beginners. And this was even before her series of rock marriages. A few years ago, I saw Absolute Beginners on the big screen at the BFI with a Q&A with Patsy and Julian Temple, the director, and concluded we treated both the film and its star very shabbily back in the day. Anyway, top tune. So Mark and Nick are of accord for once. I'm absolutely thrilled with this. I've been listening to both. And I, I mean, they are not massively dissimilar, are they? I think there is quite a lot of difference. I mean, not only is the introspective version extended, but it's a lot more orchestrated. The Eighth Wonder version is all about the synth. The introspective Pet Shop Boys version has a lot more going on. I think that's probably why I slightly prefer it. Yeah, I always thought I preferred the Pet Shop Boys version until I've been listening to it again. And I think as a pop single, the Eighth Wonder version is better. I think as a one-off, seven-inch pop chart single, I think it really works in that environment. Whereas Pet Shop Boys might have done a better job of it in an album, extended album context. I just think as a pop single, the female vocal on it is great. I was thinking about what you said last time. I agree with you that in the same way as I sort of think of Wendy James, that you thought that they were going to be massive, that Patsy Kensett was good. I mean, she ended up obviously being a star in in a different way, but you know, thought she might have had more than the one and a half hit singles that she had mm. in that era. Yeah, she was very unlucky. Her prop career crashed and burned really early on, but she found a way back in through acting. It's funny you mentioned Wendy James. The book I'm currently reading, it's a book I was given for my birthday by Nick Durden, and it is about the afterlives of pop stars. And he's tracked down loads of people years after their success, and he's talked to them about how they coped when the hits ran out. And he talks to Wendy James. When the hits ran out, she was completely sanguine about it. She didn't go off the rails. She thought, fine, all my dreams have come true. I've got enough money in the bank. I still like making music, but I don't really care whether it has an audience or not. And she's got a little studio. And about every 10 years, she puts out a solo album with minimal promotion that she's literally spent a decade perfecting just for her own amusement. And she doesn't really care how many people listen to it. She's definitely got something about her. I think that's a solid win. There aren't many people in the book who have taken that route, shall we say. I am absolutely thrilled this is one. Hooray. Well done, everybody. Well done, the public. The public is correct here. What an absolute tune that is. It's just a great 80s tune. Do I like it? Yes. Would I play it? Yes. And it's a good crossover track, which DJs love. It's a really nice pop record. It's just a great 80s tune. It's a strong start to the 1980s, who ended up finishing fourth at the end of season one. But I need to remind them in the 1980s, they also won season one, episode one, and were doing really, really well for the first half of season one before crashing and burning. So I warn the 80s not to get too complacent at this early stage. Well, I think that's about a wrap for now. Thank you very much to Nick. 
Thanks also to the Trevbots, who will be back in humanoid form with the next episode. Right, let's scrap this podcast. Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Queens of the Stone Age are not EDM.